Uh, I've asked a couple of members to help read uh, our text this morning, and uh, they're going to come and do that in just a minute. Let me plead with you. Uh, pick up your Bible, open it to the book of Acts, the book of Acts. The first reading will come from Acts chapter 2. The second reading will come from Acts chapter 17. So it won't take you very long to flip from one to the other, but Acts chapter 2. Uh, and let me plead with you to read along with this. And I know it's real easy in lengthy readings to start off and then just kind of drift off, you know, <laughs> as the reading goes on. But there are some very, very, very important things, things that I have been preaching for 30-plus years that I've never, ever picked up on. Now, it's not that it's brand new, but it's just something that I've never seen. And I think it is probably the most relevant topic that you and I could discuss today. Remember, we've been talking about in this series, it's become a matter of life or death for our churches. And, and so what we're going to discuss today, I think, is just of huge importance. Open your Bibles to God, uh, Acts chapter 2. Follow along. Brother David's going to come and read Acts chapter 2, the passage there. And when he gets through, Sister Heather's going to come and do Acts 17. <coughs> Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea, and all you that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of, of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel of foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it is not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God hath sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing these, th these before, 
spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did seek corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Wherefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which is now uh, which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Set thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ." Okay, I'm going to do my best, but this is very intimidating and outside my comfort zone. So I'll be reading from Acts 17, starting at, let me get up here, verse 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this blabbering trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're, pre you're presenting. You are, oops, sorry. you are beginning some strategies, some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Paul then stood up in the meeting and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are re very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. <clears throat> he is not served by human hands, and as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked them out of this point in time in history and boundaries of their lands. God did so. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he has not, is not far away from any of us. <clears throat> for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people wherever to repent. <clears throat> Sorry. For he has set the day he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. 
He has given proof to this, to everyone raising him from the dead. When they heard about this resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Some of the others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people followed Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Demarius, a number, and a number of others. In the text that we read to begin our worship service this morning from the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul said that he was sent to preach the gospel. The word preach there is the Greek word keruso, which means to proclaim. He says, I'm not sent to debate. I'm not sent to discuss. I'm not sent to uh, appeal to you with this. I am sent to declare, to just simply proclaim this message. And he said, I'm not going to use flowery words. I'm not going to use the wisdom of men. I'm not going to uh, do a dog and pony show. I'm not going to bait and switch. Uh, I'm just going to come and declare to you the truths of who God is and what God intends for a lost mankind. Now, it's this preaching that he says is two things to two different uh, two different worldviews of societies. You have the Jewish worldview, and then you have the Greek worldview. And, and again, I had never picked up, I, I am so excited. Somebody said, well, are you sure you need to be? I can't, I couldn't stay home today. I have been too excited about this message for, for two or three weeks now. It's just been building in me, realizing that I see something that I had never, ever seen before. Paul says to the Jews... This preaching is a stumbling block. The word stumbling block comes from the Greek word skandalizomai. We get the word scandal or scandalized from. The word picture drawn in a Greek's mind of this particular word would be that of a, uh, the trap, uh, the trigger on a trap. Remember how you used to watch Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd would come out there and he'd put a, a carrot on the ground and he'd lean a box up on its edge and put a stick under one edge of the box and tie a rope to the, the stick and he'd go over here and he'd hide behind the tree and he'd say, I'm hunting a wascally wabbit. And whenever the rabbit would come by, he would go in there to get that uh, carrot. Elmer Fudd could jerk on that string and it would pull the stick out from underneath the box. The box would come to and it would trap. The, the Bugs Bunny there under the box. That's the Greek's idea, uh, or the idea of this Greek word is that it is scandalous. It's, it is something that is offensive. It is something that could cause harm and, and so forth. And so the Jews thought this preaching of Jesus and the cross and, and all that, it's a scandalous thing to them. Now, the reason it was scandalous to them is not because they didn't understand and believe in God, not because they did not understand and have a base knowledge that they were sinners. Not that they did not understand why there was death in the world and why there was all the problems and evilness and wickedness. They understood all of that. They knew there was only one God. 
They knew that what that, the nature of that God was. They knew that all mankind were sinners. They knew they were sinners. That's why they keep coming to the temple with their sacrifice. They have a base understanding. We know God. We know what he requests or what he requires. We know where we are at. We know that we are short of that. And we know that there must be a blood sacrifice to make things right. They had that base understanding. They lived it out every day that they went to the temple. But it was scandalous, the preaching of the cross. Why? Because you are saying that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. You're saying that our coming King of kings and Lord of lords is going to resurrect the throne of David and establish it forever and never again will Rome rule over us and never again will we bend a knee to Pharaoh. Never again will we see world leaders like uh, Nebuchadnezzar and, and Belteshazzar and all these guys that we are subject to. Never again will that happen. But you're telling us it's in this Jesus? who came out of Nazareth, which we know nothing good came out of Nazareth. And it's this Jesus who was born of a lowly carpenter and not of some high priest in Jerusalem. And you're telling me that this Jesus who died on a cross, and understand that the Jew knew that death on a cross was a curse from God. It is a curse to die on the tree, they said. You're telling us that that is our Messiah back to the God that we already know? We're offended by this. This is scandalous. So Paul said the preaching of the cross was scandalous to them. In fact, Rabbi uh, Trifo remains unpersuaded by Justin's attempt to prove from Daniel 7 that Jesus was the Messiah, and he responds. Follow along on the screen. Yeah, it's there. Listen to what he says. I, this was just eye-opening to me. This is the words of a rabbi, okay? They're religious teachers and leaders. Sir, these and such like passages, referring back to Daniel 7, of Scripture compel us to await one who is great and glorious and takes the everlasting kingdom from the ancient of days as son of man. But this... Your so-called Christ is without honor and glory so that he has even fallen into the uttermost curse that is the law of God. For he was crucified. For those who think that God must be mighty and strong, not weak, the cross is an affront to God's majesty. It is insulting to link God with weakness. The cross also dashes cherished hopes of temporal triumph and world supremacy. It's what their own teachers of the Word of God are telling them about Jesus. So we understand that to the Jew, this message, it was offensive, it was scandalous. But Paul said that this same message that was scandalous to them, understand again, remember their base, they know God, they know what God expects. They know what they are. They know of sin. They know that death and, and evil and all the things that come about because of sin, they believe and understand and accept all that. They know that there must be a mediator between them and God. They just reject that Jesus is that one. And so it's a stumbling block to them. But to the, Jew, uh, but to the Greeks, it's not a stumbling block. 
to the Greeks, it is foolishness. The word foolishness comes from the Greek word moranos. We get our English word moronic or moron from it. When the Greek hears this message of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, to them it's, it's moronic speaking. And, and there's several reasons for that. Perhaps one of the reasons is, why would a God subject his only begotten son to such cruelty as a cross for a mankind that's not worthy of it. Think like a Greek for a minute. Here is some guy who is murdered and raped and pillaged and stole and, and it's just been, I mean, he's been on a spree for 50 years of his life unspeakable, heinous crimes. Would you give your child to die in that one's place? Would you? That's stupid, isn't it? To the Greek mind, that's, that's foolishness. Why would you do something like that? So they hear this preaching of, of a God that would do this, and they say, that's, that's, that's moronic teaching. Perhaps it's because they, they do not understand the idea of a singular God. As much of the world does and as we see in Acts 17. Here's these Greeks and they believe all of these different gods. And they believe all of these different theories as to how the world came into existence. They have all these different theories of, uh, of, of uh, e eternal life or life after death. Some of them not even believing in those things. They have all of these different theories. And here's the thing, and it's just, guys, listen. We live on Mars Hill in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. We live on Mars Hill. Because they are looking at each other and say, oh, you follow that God? That's all right with you. I follow this God. Oh, you believe this? That's okay for you. I believe this. There's all these gods and all these different beliefs. We're beginning to see a difference in the foundation of the Greek versus the Jew. Paul said he got to Mars Hill and he looked around and he said, I see a city given over to idols. They don't believe in one true God. They believe in all of these different gods. There's a different base here to them. This is moronic teaching, they say. How can you claim that there is only one God? And I get this all the time. If you even are going to believe that there's only one God, how do you know that the God that you believe is the true God? How do you know it's not this other God? Even if you're going to nail it down to one. When I was a kid, you know what my Sunday school teacher did? And I didn't even know if she was doing it. And we're not doing it anymore as a whole. And this is why we're in the position we're in. My Sunday school teacher taught me apologetics when I was a little kid, and I didn't even know she was doing it. I had no idea what the word apologetics meant. But what she was doing is she was taking questions of life and helping me seek from the Word of God the answer and defend that answer from the Word of God. We're too interested in making sure they stay in the lines when they color or they're making take it to take home. I would submit to you, Faith Missionary Baptist Church and the rest of our true churches, if we don't get back 
to teach in apologetics, we will die. Because they are going to the public schools and the public schools are teaching them their apologetics. Our kids are going to school and they're being told that the earth is billions of years old. Our kids are being told that there is this and that and the other. And they're being introduced to all of these theories that are taking God out of the equation. And if you think this is something brand new, all I ask you to do is go back to the book of Daniel. As soon as Babylon came in and took away the three Hebrew children, what did they do? Let's change your name, let's change your religion, let's change your understanding, and let's introduce you to science. Let us show you about the stars and the planets. And, and I, listen to me, if you walk out here and say science is bad, I hated science, but that's not got anything to do with it. I'm not saying science is bad. But I'm telling you what our world is teaching our kids is taking God out of the equation and filling it with everything else. And so our kids are being asked, well, now, wait a minute, if the earth is billions of years old, and how do we this and that and the other, and we're not giving them the apologetics. I don't care who wants to get mad about it or any of that, and I don't mean that arrogantly, but the Word of God does not allow for a billions and billions of year old earth. They need to be taught from the Word of God. But yet nobody wants to teach the book of Genesis. Nobody wants to go back and lay the foundations so this is foolishness. Perhaps maybe the foolishness to them is this. And I get this more than anything probably. How can you believe in a God who allows all the wickedness? How can you believe in a God that allows somebody to die? How can you believe in a God that would allow a young teenager or a young child to be abused? How can you believe in a God that would allow somebody to kidnap somebody and, and put them into human trafficking? How do you believe in a God that allows all this? And the answer is very simple, but it goes back to that foundation and understanding that wickedness is not the result of God. Wickedness is the result of sin. Man dies because he sinned. Simple. Don't blame it on God. Evilness came into the world because of sin. God is the one that's trying to correct and eradicate the sin. So there's all of this that is moving around in our world. In Acts chapter 17, if you'll notice, when she first began to read that, in verse 17, she read that Paul was speaking to people in a certain place. Where was that? Acts 17, 17. Where were they? Anybody read the Bible this morning with us? Let me help you. Synagogue. As a whole, who goes to the synagogues? The Jews. But you're going to find out as you continue to read this that even the Jews now are not at that same foundational level that the Jews in Acts chapter 2. You see, society has changed their foundation. Even now, they are left without that beginning place of God, one God, of what God expects of sin, and, and, and that sin brings death and all of the calamities of life. So foundations can change. As I mentioned to you, when I was a kid, when many of you were kids, the foundation was we all knew the stories of the Bible. 
We all knew that there was only one God. We all knew certain foundational truths. But I would submit to you, based on what I read in Acts 2 and Acts 17, that those foundations can be eroded away. And that's exactly what has happened in the United States of America. The foundation that there is only one God. The foundation of who that God is and what that God expects and, and what He is in His nature. The foundation of that we are sinners and that sin brings death and that there's got to be a blood sacrifice. Every bit of that foundation is being eroded away today. And if you think you and I can walk out of these doors and still go with the same message, the same way that we used to, and win them to Christ, you're missing the point of Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 17. One of the writers I've been reading after, and I want to use the illustration of the house. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago before I got sick, that uh, to build a house you don't first go out and build a roof. Brother Orville's been helping build a house down on the end of Walnut Street down by Second Baptist. As I go over to the mailbox and drive by there, I've noticed that whenever they started building that house, that they didn't go out there and first thing they did was start standing their truss up and then, sheet, uh, and then, and then uh, putting the, the decking on the, on the trusses. And their next step wasn't to put the shingles on it. And now that we got the roof built, let's build the walls. Where did they start? You got to start at the foundation. This particular writer that I was talking about is presenting the idea that we need to have a gospel reset and that we have to start with the foundation, then build the walls, and build, then build the roof. And what he's talking about is simply this, the building which is the gospel. The roof, and I'm backing up for a purpose, the roof is the promise of the gospel. The roof having the idea of it, that there is a life beyond this life and that there is a heaven and that the gospel promises you to have a, a name written in the Lamb's book of life. The walls is likened unto the power of the gospel, that through the power of the gospel your life can be enriched and it can be made more full and it can be all of these things. And I'm telling you, we have a world full of people that are wanting to preach the power and the promise of the gospel as simply, what do I get out of the deal? That's where the gospel is focusing today. What do I get out of the deal? Well, I get the promise of a better life, a promise of a future life, and the power of God to, to, to make my life better here. But the problem is the foundation's not been laid. That understanding of those things that the Jews understood in Acts chapter 2, the foundation, the need of the gospel. Let's say I'm a doctor and Heather comes to see me. And she sits down and I don't, I don't get my stethoscope out. I don't look in her ears. She comes in. I don't ask her what's going on. Why are you here today? She just comes in. They set her up on the table. And I walk in and say, uh, we'll be doing surgery on you tomorrow. How quick is she going to show up in the morning for surgery? Why? Why would she not show up? Why do I need surgery? Y'all, we have got to show them why they need to be saved. Because they don't understand that anymore. They do not know that there is only one God. They do not know 
that God is righteous and holy. They doubt that because of what they see in the world. They do not know that we're sinful. We just got a few flaws, and the, the, the more we grow and develop, the, the better we're picking ourselves up by the bootstraps. Go look at the prisons and see if we're picking ourselves up by the bootstraps. They don't know the foundation that you knew as a kid. And I, I, I hesitate to do this because people are going to say, well, I, that church is failing. You want to know where the fail started first? Not with the church. Believe it or not, the church was not the one that was given the authority and the command by God's word to teach those kids. Guess who it was given to? You moms and you dads. And it doesn't do any good to teach it if they don't see you live it. Okay? But these things have been eroded away. Everybody wants the good part of the gospel. But nobody wants to preach the necessity of the gospel. Why? You tell people they're sinners and guess what they're liable not to do? What are people liable not to do if you keep telling them that they're sinful? They may not come back. Let me just be honest with you because there's a lot of guys out there that are more concerned about this. If they come back, they may not put as much in the offering plate. And I hate to tell you, but there's enough charlatans out there that are pastors that are too worried about their paycheck so they won't teach the Word of God because they're afraid that they may get, you know, their pay may not be there for long. That's why Paul said, I'm not here to debate. I'm not here to discuss. I'm not here to seek your approval. I'm here to, to, to simply declare to you some truths. And so I'm going to start at this foundation. Once we get the foundation, we'll build some walls. Once we build the walls, we'll put a roof on it. Then you will have the full building. Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, I'll hurry. I want you to just notice what Peter does in this sermon. Number one, he explains Pentecost. Why was there an explanation needed? Well, what were all these Jews standing around saying happened as these disciples spoke in tongues? What were they saying was happening? Why did they speak in languages? They were drunk. And so Peter says, no, let me set the record straight. Please learn this. As we deal with lost people, as we deal with lost people, it may become necessary to set some records straight before we get into. For example, if you're coming and you're believing that I'm drunk, and I'm going to preach to you the gospel, you're probably not interested in, in really hearing it and receiving it from me. So Peter said, let's set the record straight. Now these guys aren't drunk. And again, talking to Jews who knew the prophets, he said, this is exactly what the prophets told you was going to happen. So he explains Pentecost. But then I want you to notice what he does. His sermon is all about Jesus. All about Jesus. He validates Jesus as the Messiah. He talks about the things that Jesus came and the things that Jesus did in Acts chapter 2. He talks about Jesus' ministry. 
And all of this is to validate that this Jesus is the Messiah. Let me remind you, these Jews in Acts chapter 2, they already understand there is a God. They already understand God is righteous. They already accept the fact that they're sinful. They already know that there must be a blood sacrifice. Our problem with Acts chapter 2 and those Jews is, is Jesus that sacrifice? And Peter is setting out to prove that he is. So he explains Pentecost. He validates Jesus as, his, as the Messiah. He speaks of Jesus' crucifixion. A scandalous point of the cross was that Jesus, the Messiah, would have been cursed by God. And so again, he addresses that. The crucifixion came about because of you and because the Father had handed him over in order to pay a price for sin. Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 speaks of the burial. Another important part of proving that this Jesus was that way as it also addressed prophecy. And then he touched the resurrection. He didn't stay dead, but he's alive. Not only does he talk about those, but he, he, he carries it a little bit further and he talks about his ascension. Not only did he live and he, and he died, was he buried, he resurrected, and now he is ascended before the Father. And he has a continuous ministry for you and I. That's a very brief, quick look at Acts chapter 2 because I want us to focus the last few minutes on Acts chapter 17. Upon going there, I want you to think, though, of the results of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. What happened? What does the Bible say happened as Peter closed out his sermon in Acts chapter 2? If you will, the invitation was offered. Well, what happened is what doesn't happen most time in our services. If you want to use the idea of an invitation, they come flooding down the aisle. What, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? Between your preaching and the Spirit convicting us, we believe what you've said. What do we need to do? Great results. Acts chapter 17. Let's talk about Paul's sermon for just a few moments and then we'll close. As excited as I've been about this sermon, I've been nervous about some of the statements I put in there. Number one, why preaching is foolishness. That concerned me that somebody would take that the wrong way. It's only foolishness to those that do not believe, all right? And this first statement in Acts chapter 17 bothered me, but to me, it is an important key. I would challenge you sometime today to go back and reread Acts chapter 17, verse 16 through the rest of the book and find that there is no reference to Jesus by name and there is only a slight, quick, minor reference to him as a person. Now, if you walk out of here and tell anybody that Brother Jeff said that salvation can be attained through some other means in Jesus Christ, I'm going to come knock on your door this afternoon. And I'm going to breathe on you so you get bronchitis. Listen, I am, I am not lessening Christ. And I'm not lessening the importance of Christ for salvation but I'm showing you, hopefully, that this people 
we're at a different level. To start with Christ would have been to start with the walls and the roof. Paul knew as he stood among these people who admittedly didn't even know the true God and they had all of these gods and just out of fear that we may have missed one they had created an altar and a place to worship the gods that they didn't even know. Their foundation starting point was different than the Jews in Acts chapter 2. Paul does not preach a great deal about Jesus and, and the crucifixion. Is he presenting another way to be saved? Absolutely not. But he's starting at a point that is beyond where his hearers are ready to start. He must first explain God and, and reveal God and help them see God and understand that God makes a, a, a requirement of righteousness and that he's right in doing so. And then moving from there, he has to show them that there is sin and that sin is passed among all and death by sin and all of the problems in the world and all of this is because of sin. I've got to get you to understand you have a need for a Savior before I can get you to the point that's going to save you. He doesn't mention Jesus. One reference in all of those verses, very quiet, very quick, and not even by name. In fact, just the one. I do not believe Paul was lessening Jesus no more than I am today. But I believe Paul knew that audience was different. It even changed from being in the synagogue to here. Almost no reference to Jesus. It's amazing to me. Never in my life would I have considered looking for a sermon preached by the Apostle Paul that would have little reference to Jesus. What's he do? Let me tell you about God. This God that you don't even know, that's the one I want to introduce you to. And he begins to go on and describe God. you got all of these gods and all of these temples and all of these altars. But there's only one God. And God is the God of creation. And, God, and, and he begins to reveal and introduce to them God. You know, I was preaching several years ago and there was a church member that had a, a family member that was in the cult that didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And they made the mistake one day of telling me, well, at least they're going to church somewhere. And I said, no, that's not right. They'd be better off staying at home and never going to church in their life again than to go to a church that's going to tell them that Jesus is not the Son of God for you cannot be saved without Jesus. And I believe that. But in the society in which we live, I also now become convinced you can't be saved without that foundational knowledge of God. You, 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 you don't have God, you don't have sin, you have no explanation for death, you have no explanation for sorrow, and all of this is foolishness now. Paul says, I, I'm not going to deal a lot with the cross. 
I'm not going to do a lot with Jesus right now. Right now, I want to introduce you to God. And from there, believe me, Paul was going to get to the other if they gave him a chance. He said, repentance is needed. He said, you know, in times past, God has winked at or overlooked. But now he commands everywhere repentance. Paul deals with the fact that they're sinners. And you've got to deal with this. There's that foundation of the need. And then he says, judgment is sure. You see, this is the foundation that the Jews understood in Acts chapter 2 that the Greeks and some of the Jews in Acts 17 did not understand. They didn't know these things. Here's all these gods. Pick whichever one you want to serve. And in truth, many of them served several gods. No thought, no explanation, no teaching as to the who, true, who the true God was and what that meant. As you look at Paul's sermon, I want you to notice the result. This is important, y'all. Remember when Peter got through and quote-unquote offered the invitation and the Bible says thousands of them came forward? Guess what happened when Paul offered the invitation after his sermon in Acts chapter 17? Mostly rejected, accepted by some, found interesting and curious by others. Some said, this guy's teaching stuff that's crazy. He's talking about another God. And he's telling us about the things that God did. I, I wish we had the days of Pentecost that Peter had. My eye teeth would fall out if we could offer an invitation time and literally the altars would just be full of people. I'd be like Fred Sanford. This is the big one. I'm going home. But y'all, there's a difference in the society that Paul preached to and the society that Peter preached to. And this society, you're introducing and hitting them with so much that it's going to take some time sometimes. Now, there's going to be a few along the way that's just going to jump on board with it. But for the most, you're going to have to plant the seed and, and water and, and keep working the seed. And somewhere, it'll catch with some of them, but it'll always be to a great many of them nothing more than foolishness. In closing, Faith Missionary Baptist Church, I want to welcome you to our Greek cultured society. Welcome to Mars Hill on Arkadelphia where the kids are going to school and they're being taught a billion year old earth and monkeys turning into men and God is a myth or a fable. The word of God is irrelevant and truth is personal to you if it's even knowable that's our society perhaps maybe we're going to have to take and make some changes the way the apostle Paul did but please note this society's changes do not stop the work they only require an extra step
And I know I've said it before, but I fear that we've let our society stop the work. They're not responding to preaching like they used to. It's a bad world. Things are different. The work must not stop, y'all. You know what? The world that I grew up in was so different from the world of my grandparents. I watched my grandfather mow his yard. He had one of those, what do you call them? Sickle mowers, whatever, where you, there's no motor on it. You just push the thing and it makes the blade. Somebody help me. What is that thing called? Sickle? Is that what it is? He, he, he mowed his yard for years with that. That's all he ever knew. The, the, the world that my grandparents grew up in had no idea of a computer, color television, those kind of things. What I'm trying to get to see is the world's constantly changing. This is not new. Y'all, we can't stop the work. It's a matter of life or death. You live, whether you want to accept it or not, you live on Mars Hill, even in Arkadelphia. God help us that if we're the only ones left doing it, that we as faith are going to teach apologetics to our kids in Sunday school. And we're going to teach them in our homes. And we're going to equip these people to answer the questions Because if we don't, the Greek society will. And already a generation has risen that doesn't have that foundation that you and I had. That's part of why the work has become so difficult. Father, we come to you this morning. Again, I, I pray that we would be honest enough to fall on our face before you and confess our shortcomings, our sins, our failures, our laziness and not being out sharing your word as you commanded us to. Father, that we would not be just interested in all the benefits of being your child and but God that we'd understand there's some responsibilities to being your child. God, we live in a world that doesn't know you. Society is trying as hard as they can to remove every single uh, influence of God. God, help us not to change the message to make it more appealing, not to... To, to quit the work, but Father, to realize that we have got to lay this foundation of who you are and start there and help them to understand sin and, and, and that death comes by sin and so that if we're not saved and then get to the gospel. Lord, time is running out and the work is great. And we as your children have become satisfied. Break our hearts today. Convict us. 
challenge us and stir us to move and do more. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.